Greetings, fellow investors. I'm Matthew Cochran, a lead advisor at Seven Investing, where it is our mission to empower you to invest in your future. We do that by providing monthly stock recommendations to our premium members and educational content that is freely available to everyone. Listeners, today I am very excited to welcome back Value Stock Geek. By day, Value Stock Geek toils in corporate America, but by night, he's a do-it-yourself retail investor pursuing financial independence while chronicling his investments on his on his Substack and on his blog. We had him on our podcast just about a year ago when he talked about his quote unquote weird portfolio. And after a crazy year in the markets, I thought it would be a perfect time to check back in with Value Stock Geek to see how his weird portfolio performed amidst all this macroeconomic uncertainty. And outside of the weird portfolio, he seeks wonderful companies at wonderful prices with an emphasis on economic moats. And you know, I like that. And we're going to discuss some of the companies he's found that have earned a place in his portfolio, as well as some companies that he's looked at, but passed on owning. Value Stock Geek, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Oh, thanks for coming back. So let's just start here. 2022 was a crazy year. Uh, many macroeconomic factors were at play, including inflation, rapidly rising interest rates, a supply chain crunch, uh, you know, people saying like a recession is coming or maybe a soft landing is coming. Uh, there's geopolitical tensions that are flaring up around the world. We have a war involving Russia. Amidst all this, how did the weird portfolio do? Uh, the weird portfolio is down 17% in 2022. Um, total stock market was down 19.51%. Um, I would say normally in a year where the stock market would be down, the weird portfolio should have held up better. Uh, but we had an unusual situation where the bonds were crushed due to rising interest rates. Um, gold should have also done a little bit better, but, that, but it was at least flat for the year. That was constrained a little bit by the US dollar, but overall not too bad. Um, I'd probably preface this by saying, I don't think last year was that bad for US stocks. <laughs> that might surprise some people, but right. um, I think a 20% fall in the market is kind of par for the course. It's something people should expect every few years. Um, and I think the weird portfolio is more there for protecting against the really, really nasty, like 50, 60% drawdowns, at which point I would expect long-term treasuries and gold to do better than they did in the last year. Um, I would say that uh, Harry Brown would call this, who designed the permanent portfolio, which is what the weird portfolio is based on, he would call the last year a hard money recession, where the Fed is raising interest rates in an attempt to deal with inflation. And I mean, that has two outcomes. That's either going to work, in which case inflation will come down and probably stocks will do well after that, or um, it'll work too well <laughs> and um, it'll drive the economy into a nasty deflationary crisis where the Fed will have to really cut interest rates to get out of it and they'll go back to zero interest rate policy. Um, and we'll, we'll see what happens. So uh, I encourage listeners to go back and listen to our year ago episode if they want like a, a really detailed breakdown of the weird portfolio. But why don't you just like maybe give us a brief overview of like the uh, portfolio allocation of the weird portfolio? Sure. So the weird portfolio is a, I would say it's a risk parity style portfolio where it's designed to have uh, uncorrelated assets that should do well in different environments. When something is up a lot, there's something that should be down a lot, and it's designed to kind of smooth out your returns. Um, for all these portfolios, there's a lot of different versions of them. You could go for Harry Brown's permanent portfolio. That's the original. Ray Dalio has a version of it, the All Seasons portfolio. Um, they all basically have three assets. So you've got stocks, treasuries, and gold. Those are the big ones that are in there. And gold is designed to deal with inflation. Treasuries are there to deal with uh, crisis, or declining interest rates, and stocks are there for prosperity. Um, in terms of my specific allocations, um, mine is geared towards global small cap value, which is 40% of the portfolio, real estate, 20% of the portfolio, long-term treasuries, 20% of the portfolio, and gold, which is another 20% of the portfolio. 
and I believe like uh is is this the is this the is this still the current makeup of the weird portfolio right here? That's it. Yeah. I, right. I mean, you can do this with different ETFs. Um, there's different versions of small cap U.S. small cap value that are available. There's different versions of international small caps that are around. But um, yeah, this is these are the ETFs that I use. So now, like, why don't you? Uh, what? And again, we did this a lot more in detail last year. But like, why? Why forty percent to or twenty percent to small value, and then another twenty percent to international small value? Like what, uh, what, how do you see that's uncorrelated to the rest of the portfolio? So small cap value is, abs- is, is correlated with the overall stock market, but small cap value has a nice little quirk to it where it tends to at least avoid the big bubbles. So I was very concerned about, for instance, investing in 100% S&P 500, and then the S&P 500 goes into some Japan-like bubble and then I lose money for 30 years. Meanwhile, small cap value is a place where you can hang out and it, um, it'll it go down with the market. It's definitely not immune to uh, big bear markets, but you have um, an asset class that does fairly well when there's a bubble that's going on. Um, and this year, actually, small value held up pretty well. Um, small cap value is down about 10%, while the overall market was down about 20%. So it delivered some solid performance this year. And it's split up between the US and international just because I wanted to avoid home country bias. I wanted to, I'm a US investor and I didn't wanna have all of my eggs in the United States as much as I love the country, as much as I love the companies here. Um, I thought it was smart to split it up internationally and I settled on 50-50. And then what about 20% to real estate? You have 10% to US real estate, 10% to international real estate. Why, uh, why, why dedicate a fifth of your portfolio to real estate? Sure. So real estate is another one of those assets that tends to avoid the big large cap growth bubbles. Um, it performed a lot like small cap value in the early 2000s. Doesn't mean that real estate can't get into a bubble as we saw in um, the late um, 2000s, but it does tend to avoid those big large cap growth style bubbles. It also adds an element of uh, inflation protection. So in the 1970s, REITs did very well in comparison to the overall US market because your replacement costs with real estate are gonna go up with the inflation rate. Uh, Rents are going to go up with the inflation rate. So you get some protection there. And then on top of that, you get some yield, which is uh, a bit more reliable than you'd get from some other asset classes. Um, if you were to do like a correlation back test, you would see it basically performs the same as small cap value, but I thought it had some of those special characteristics where it was worth giving a special place to in the portfolio. And, uh, and what about gold? So now you have gold in your portfolio. I think this is probably an area where because of like gold's like recent track record, I guess, uh, it's recent performance. Uh, when I say recent, I really mean like the last couple decades. Like, I think this is probably an area like most U.S. investors probably ignore or neglect too much. But you have 20% of the weird portfolio to gold. So so why does gold have such a, a high place in this portfolio? So the most important aspect of gold is that it's uncorrelated with bonds and stocks. So you have an uncorrelated asset that is going to do different things than your stocks and your bonds will, which helps smooth out returns. So gold, what happens is it tends to hold up very well when there's a big deflationary crisis. So if there's something like the early 1930s or 2008, gold will at least be flat or it'll go up. Um, Then if you have a situation where there's some extreme inflation or currency problem, gold should do very well in those environments. It's not necessarily there for a Mad Max style apocalypse. Um, It's kind of just there for, it's an uncorrelated asset. It can have strong decades when stocks are having lost decades. Um, And it does help smooth out the volatility in the portfolio. Um, This year, gold did pretty well. Gold was basically flat while the US stock market was down. So that definitely uh, helped the portfolio. And then finally, long-term treasuries. So you, you have 20% of the weird portfolio to long-term treasuries. Why so much in long-term treasuries? 
even when the yields were low, you had 20% to long-term treasuries. Yeah, I, I stick to the formula. Um, I, I'm sure I don't want to speculate about where interest rates are going to necessarily go. So, you know, right now with hindsight, it seems like, oh, well, interest rates were below 1%. It was obvious that they were going to go up. For me, I kind of am macro agnostic. I want to ignore, I, I don't want to try to predict interest rates or inflation. So, but why they're in the portfolio. So long-term treasuries tend to do very well when we're in a really serious bear market, like a down 50% or more kind of bear market, because the Fed is ultimately going to have to go in there and cut interest rates. And the longer you go out in duration, the bigger the effect will be in terms of the price movement in the asset. So in a year like 2008, your long-term treasuries were up 20%. Um, in the early 1930s, your long-term treasuries were up significantly. Even in 73, 74, long-term treasuries did pretty well and, and offered some protection. So that's why that's there in the portfolio. And it also is highly uncorrelated with, um, with the stock market. This year, it did terrible. Um, long-term treasuries had a, pretty, had a pretty rough year. They were down about 30%. So, but um, hey, that's, that's what happens. The point of this portfolio is you're just not trying to predict anything. Um, I stuck to it even when it was at a low interest rate because rates could always go lower. We could have had another COVID lockdown situation and we could have entered a kind of deflationary mess where the Fed had to take us maybe to negative interest rates or, and that should have offered protection while stocks were getting clobbered. That's not what happened. Then inflation got higher and we had a, you know, we had a bit of a boom and, and unemployment got lower and um, yeah, long-term treasuries were crushed. But I think the situation now is much better. You have, um, it's positive yielding. You're around, uh, I think, 4% uh, with treasury. So it should now have some room to fall again if we do enter into a more serious bear market. And if that doesn't happen, if we don't enter a bigger fall, well, now you have some income. Now, this isn't your entire portfolio. Uh, you know, how do you determine, because I know at different times, this kind of fluctuates like as a percentage of your portfolio. So how do you determine like one, I guess maybe start like how much about how much of a, your portfolio is the weird portfolio now? And like, how do you, how does that fluctuate with time? How do you determine that? So for me, the money that I save and my paycheck every two weeks goes into the weird portfolio. So every time I go and I get a paycheck, I buy whatever asset class is light in my overall portfolio. And that's basically my vehicle for saving all of my money. Um, then I set aside a slice of my net worth and I said, this is going to be my active portfolio where I'm actually going to pick stocks. Now I use the weird portfolio in there where if I can't find enough stocks to buy, I'll hold the asset allocation. So in that portfolio, in that active portfolio where I am picking stocks, um, I started the year in 2022 about 80% in the weird portfolio. I only owned a handful of stocks. And then this year as the market declined, I used that as an opportunity to pick up a lot of businesses that I thought were on sale. And so like how much, like, so you started the year at 80% of your portfolio and we obviously saw uh, the stock market come down quite a bit and especially some names come down quite a bit in 2022 about how much does it make of your portfolio now so now that's down to 20 percent. so i went from 80 percent weird portfolio to 20 percent weird portfolio and last year i bought a lot of stocks as the market declined so this is a perfect segue so when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. 
Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. So you obviously saw a lot you liked this year in the stock market, or at least a lot more than you liked at the beginning of 2022. Uh, what do you look for when you look for stocks? Like what's your basic uh, investment philosophy when you're looking for uh, individual names? So I am looking for wonderful businesses at wonderful prices. So I run a sub stack um, where basically what I do is I look into a company every single week and I try to determine, is this a wonderful company? Usually they're a wonderful company. And I add them to a lot, but they're too expensive. And I add them to my watch list and I wait for them to go down. So a lot of the companies that I had previously analyzed fell a lot in 2022 to my buy zone. So what's a wonderful company? So I'm looking for a company with um, a moat. So I want it to have something that will insulate it from competition. I want it to have high returns on equity, high returns on invested capital. I want it to do it without a lot of leverage. I want it to generate free cash flow. I want there to be competent management that can deal with it, um, that can make sure that the, that the company is managed well. Um, and I want it to be of basically like a high financial quality. Like I want to see um, good metrics in terms of debt to equity, in terms of the Altman Z score, which is a measure of bankruptcy risk. I want to see a good M score, which measures um, earnings potential earnings manipulation. Um, and then just logically from like a qualitative side, I want to be able to think through the business, understand how they make money and feel confident that this is a stock I can hold up for five to 10 years and it's not going to fall apart. The business isn't going to fall apart. And so you said a lot of times you find wonderful companies, but they're not at a valuation you like. So what are you looking for as far as like a, a valuation? What, what makes it attractive enough to earn a place in your portfolio? Sure. So valuation, I think it's more art than science. Um, but from like a quantitative point of view, I want to see a good yield. So I want to see a um, basically an EV EBIT multiple, ideally less than 15. I don't think I'd pay more than 20 on a stock. Um, then what I look at are the, um, I look at trending in multiples. I look at trending in price to sales. I look at trending in enterprise multiples. And I want to see where does it normally trade. So if it's at a discount to those multiples of where it typically is, I'll be interested in it. So I know that I'm, I can at least approximate that I'm getting in there with some margin of safety. Um, and I also like to see some shareholder yield. I'd like to see a company that's buying back stock or um, issuing dividends at an attractive rate. Well, so let's get to the fun part. Let's talk about some of these individual names you found. Um, and like we discussed, like some of the companies we could uh, we could talk about. Uh, and, and first up is, is General Dynamics. So General Dynamics is, uh, if listeners aren't familiar with them, they're a defense contractor. They make business jets. Um, you know, their aerospace segment uh, makes the uh, Gulfstream uh, business jets. They're like, they have a segment that produces like uh, the M1 Abrams tank. Their marine sub-segment uh, manufactures and creates nuclear-powered submarines, among other things. Uh, what do you like? And I think you've held this in your portfolio for quite a bit. Uh, this is just, if you're watching on YouTube, this is just a look at their most you know, recent results. Um, wh what's attractive about General Dynamics? Yeah, I bought General Dynamics in October 2020. The stock was beaten up after um, COVID and everything else, and it was one of the. It was when I was transitioning to looking for these really qual high quality companies. Um, it has a as great a moat as 
any you could find where their main customer is the United States government who can print their own currency. <laughs> so, uh, and it's in an industry where we're likely not going to see any major budget cuts. Um, and at the time it was available at a very attractive price. So I think it was down to a PE of about 12. Um, I bought it because I thought, first of all, the price was attractive, it had a moat, but I also thought that um, tensions would be rising with China in a naval capacity. So General Dynamics, big business is a big segment of their business is marine, um, and that's manufacturing um, ships for the Navy, um, critically submarines. So, you know, they have a, they have a contract for, um, for the Columbia class submarine, which is the newest nuclear powered submarine that the United States government has created. Um, that's a that's a contract that's worth $100 million, and they're going to build multiple submarines over the next uh, couple of decades. Um, and what I was looking at when I bought that was I looked at the naval capacity of China, and I saw that China had actually had more ships than the United States did. So I thought, I looked at that and said, well, it's probably likely that the United States is going to catch up. They're not going to allow the Chinese to um, overrun their defense capabilities. Um, so I bought stock um, under that thesis that tensions would be rising throughout the world and this would be a natural beneficiary of it and it's at a solid price. Yeah, I, re I, I wanted to talk about this because the, the defense industry is uh, an industry that I had not really looked at too hard up until like a couple of years ago. And uh, I remember talking to Lawrence Hamptel. And he kind of sold me on just like some of the unique uh, merits of the defense industry and had me started looking at it. And in the last year, year and a half, like my, the, the companies I own in the defense industry are like some of the only things I've owned that have worked at all. So, um, you know, but like there's also like, you know, when you have a defense company, whether it's General Dynamics, I own Lockheed Martin and, and L3 Harris. Uh, you know, but there's some others, Northrop Grumman, you could easily put in there or Raytheon, you know, you, you also have like, um, like, like as far as like economic moats go, like you have like some very unique moats in that arena. Like you have like uh, contracts that are like, can last a very long time, like Lockheed Martin with the F-35. I mean, that's like that, that platform like will will last for decades more and it's you know it's already been in effect for decades you have to have like a really highly skilled workforce that's willing to work on uh, uh these platforms that are designed at the end of the day to really like to kill other people which a lot of uh you know like uh in recent years like when microsoft gotten involved with the department of defense or alphabet like they've had a lot of employees in their employee base like right uh, open letters to management protesting that they don't want to be working on anything that might have to do with that stuff. They also have to, the highly skilled workforce that's willing to work on this stuff also has to be able to pass a security clearance. Mm -hmm. You know, so the U.S. government has a very vested interest in making sure these companies like maybe not thrive, but at least not like suffer. Like they don't want mass layoffs going on. They don't want these factories being shuttered because it's not like you can turn these things back on with a switch. It just the defense industry has just a few unique moats like that uh, that make it like really interesting. Yeah, absolutely, they're great moats, and they're very immune to competition. So I can't I can't start up a company tomorrow and manufacture nuclear submarines. So it's right. uh, it's it's a great great business to be in because you don't face the constant disruption that's assaulting other industries. Um, they're pretty safe where they are. Yeah, absolutely. So another company uh, that you own that I've owned for quite a while is is PayPal. Now, I've owned PayPal almost since it got spun off from eBay, and up until wow, up until about a year ago, like it was doing fantastic, and it has been beaten down. And uh, at some point along that way, you also have owned shares, but like this is still a company. Um, that when you look at its historical growth rates, and again, if you're watching on YouTube, I just put up like a recent slide from its uh, recent uh, earnings presentation, but it has 435 million active users. That includes 35 million merchant accounts. Uh, engagement 
with these accounts keeps going up. Um, they now average, an active account now averages almost 52 transactions per year. That's up from, uh, th that's up significantly in the last few years. Uh, and while account growth has slowed, it, it is still growing. Uh, free cash flow is growing, earnings per share is growing, and it's, it's, this is still a growing company and its valuation is much more attractive than it used to be. What do you like about PayPal? Sure. So I looked at PayPal a while back and I thought it was an excellent business growing quickly. I mean, when you think about it logically, it, it, just phrase it this way, are electronic payments going to grow? And I think the answer to that is a unanimous yes. So if you think electronic payments are going to grow, PayPal will be a unique beneficiary of that, not just because of PayPal, but also because of Venmo, which they also own. Um, however, it, it always traded at a very extreme valuation. And in 2021, it really reached a pretty um, absurd level. It got up to, I think, 80 times earnings. So the growth rate fell a little bit and people freaked out and the, and the stock fell. And at one point it got down to 20 times. So I thought that's the best opportunity I'm going to get to own a business like this. Um, I was a little bit early on that. Um, the stock has dropped more since I bought it, but uh, I'm sticking with it. And I think they'll continue to grow that user base, continue to grow their fundamentals. And the stock should do well, especially from the current valuation. I'm not too concerned about it falling to say 10 times earnings or something like that. I think 20 times is a pretty reasonable price for it. And what do you say about like that, you know, while digital payments is certainly growing, uh, maybe now there's just so much competition that it's going to get lost in the, in, in the crowd, so to speak, because you have Apple pay, you have Amazon pay, you have, um, you know, cash app, you have Klarna, you, you know, um, like on Twitter, which we're, we're, which we're both active on. Like a lot of times you'll see like people just put up like all the buttons, all the payment buttons now that come up at the end of a website when you want to check out. And it is a very crowded field. What, how do you think PayPal can withstand that competition? I do think that they can withstand it. It's definitely a threat, but I'm not seeing anything in the financial results to suggest that, that their competitive position is becoming eroded. Um, and I think that they have enough of an established position where pretty much everybody has a PayPal account, pretty much everybody has a Venmo account. I know just going out with friends, when people want to split a bill at a restaurant, it's going to, everybody uses a Venmo account. So I haven't seen that really getting disrupted. So I, I'm not too concerned about that. And I think because they were in such an early mover there, I mean, they were the first mover in digital payments that really gives them an advantage over everybody else. And yeah, it's becoming a crowded field, but I think that um, just because so many users are on it, it creates network effects where it's unlikely that it's really difficult for competitors to get in there and really eat into that business. So um, I feel pretty secure in it. And judging, like I said earlier, judging by the financial results, I think that it's in, uh, that it's in good shape and there's not a lot of evidence that that mode is eroding. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's uh, like I said, I've, I've owned it a long time. <laughs> I've ridden it a, a long way up and a long way back down. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. Like when you when you look at the results, like I just don't see anything yet that's especially definitively says that th this is a company in decline. Uh, I don't think you can conclude anything like that when you when you look at the, the company's results. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. And um yeah, that's great that you bought it so early. I mean, even um, even though you've had a rough year, you're still up significantly. From I'm still, I'm still doing levels. fine in it. I'm still doing fine in it. Yes, uh, there is part of me that wishes maybe I had taken an opportunity to at least trim it about a year ago or a year and a half ago. But um, yes, like uh, that that's a that's a company that I was I was in early on for sure. All right, the next company is. Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. That's the world's largest dedicated chip foundry. Uh, it has more than like 50% like of the global market share. Um, it was founded in 1987. It's in Taiwan. Uh, it's scale in like high quality technology allow the firm, you know, it generates solid operating margins, even in like the highly competitive foundry business. 
um, and the shift to the fabulous business model, which basically means that companies like Apple, AMD, NVIDIA, they design chips, but they don't actually make their chips has really been a great tailwind for TSMC. Uh, what do you like about Taiwan Semi? So I think, again, like high level long-term trends to think about, are semiconductor, is semiconductor demand going to be higher 10 years from now than it is today? I think without a question, it's going to be higher. We're going to need more chips. Um, TSM, they're the leader in the industry, but they're also really at the technological forefront. I mean, um, Intel, um, a stock which I actually recently sold, um, I think they were proposing plants for 10 nanometer chips. Um, and then TSM is down to five nanometers. So they're already massively ahead of the competition. Um, they manufacture chips for Apple, for instance. Um, and those are becoming pretty entrenched relationships, almost like the kind of relationships that Intel used to have with PC manufacturers back in the 80s and 90s. And now um, TSM is establishing those same relationships. Um, I never, this was one of those companies I looked at a couple of years ago, and it was, I think, 40 times earnings. And I never imagined I would ever have an opportunity to get that at like a value price. Um, but this December, it fell down to 10 times. So I figured this is my opportunity to buy this really incredible company. I think this is one of the most wonderful businesses in the world. Uh, the only question I think that I have about it, and probably I think why it was you you were able to get at such a valuation, is the geopolitical risk that Taiwan has with China. How do you weigh that type of risk with owning a company like this? Yeah, so I think China is a big part of it. Um, but the way I kind of look at that is, well, if we go to war with China, I have bigger problems than what's in my portfolio. <laughs> so we're probably dealing with a nuclear power um, who will probably also engage in cyber attacks and attacks on our infrastructure. So hopefully that never happens. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I don't think I'll, I don't, I don't think I'll care much about my shares in Taiwan Semiconductor if uh, the United States is getting nuked. <laughs> All right. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's, yes, that's, that's a fair point. That's a so, fair point. So that's one aspect of it. The other aspect I think it was cheap is because semiconductor demand was super strong and um, in the last couple of years, and it looks like it's waning right now. And there's also concerns that we're going into a recession. So the way I looked at it, um, yes, there might be a re recession in the next year, but where are we going to be 10 years from now? Without a doubt. Um, semiconductor demand is going to be much higher than it is today. And meanwhile, you have a stock that's getting beaten, a wonderful company that's getting beaten up for macro reasons that have nothing to do with the actual execution of the business. The business is still a phenomenal business. And yeah, there might be a recession in the next year, but what's going to happen after that? Um, and that's assuming we're going to have the kind of horrible, nasty recession that everybody is anticipating. Um, so. To me, it was a perfect setup. It's a wonderful company that's getting beaten up for reasons that have nothing to do with the actual performance of the company. Now, on your on your Substack, you look at many companies, and I would say, like, I mean, I haven't, uh, I don't know this definitively, but I would say you you pass on more companies than you buy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in uh, in like, uh, you know, I I subscribe, and and you know, I I enjoy reading your write ups. When, uh, you know, so you look at a company and a lot of times you might like the business model, you like the business and then you're like, but it's too expensive. Mm -hmm. So like, maybe like, what's an example, if you could give like one, like of a company that you liked, there's a lot of things to like about it, but it's just, you just couldn't get there with the valuation. Yeah, almost all of my write-ups are in that bucket where it's, this is a great company, but it's way too expensive for me. So um, the thinking there is I want to basically build up a good watch list of companies I already know are great companies. And when the market tanks or when there's some big macro problem and there's an opportunity to buy these at good prices, I've already done the work on them and I can just go in and scoop them up. Um, I never really imagined I'd get the opportunity to do it with a lot of the tech companies that I bought last year, like TSM, and uh, I also own Meta, um, but it happened, and they fell, and then immediately the narrative shifts, and um, you get the opportunity to buy some of these. So 
A recent one I looked at that I thought was a, a wonderful company was Brown Foreman. Um, they are a spirits manufacturer. They make Jack Daniels whiskey. Um, it's a pretty solid moat. I'm pretty sure people will be drinking Jack Daniels whiskey in 50 years. I don't think that's ever going to go away. Um, it's currently around uh, 27 times earnings. Um, but that's just a, a wonderful company. You know, they make spirits. They earn high margins in the spirits. Demand isn't really going away for them. Um, and it's, it's, it's an excellent company. Um, and I'm hoping that at some point I'll get the opportunity to, to buy it. Yeah, and, and this is a company I might be a little more familiar with as a consumer than an investor. Uh, but yeah, they make, uh, they not only do they make Jack Daniels, they also make Woodford Reserve, Old mm -hmm. Forester, which are very well-known bourbon brands. Uh, I know they have some tequilas as well. And their companies are sold around the world. They obviously have some great brands, some great distribution moat. What, what, like how far away, when you look at a company like this, like, are you, I guess like, like, like when, when I look at a company, like, so let's take Brown Foreman. And again, I'm not familiar with Brown Foreman, but like, uh, if I really like it, but if I'm even not even, maybe even that close, I'll take like just a really small, like, uh, buy, make a really small buy of the company to help me keep an eye on it. Like, how do you keep track of a company like this that you're like, I'm really interested in this company. I really like a lot of things about it, but it's not at the valuation I want. Do you just have like a, a running watch list that you're constantly checking? Like, how do you monitor companies like that? Yeah, I keep a watch list. It's basically a spreadsheet, a list of companies that I've looked at and I've deemed to be wonderful. And then every um, month or so, I'll go in and I'll update those valuations and see what they're currently trading at. Um, and then if they really do fall to an attractive level, then I'll do a deeper dive and try to figure out, well, what's why is this cheap? Is it just some macro nonsense or is there legitimately a problem with the company? Um, and a company like Brown Foreman, like I, I think, like you said, I think you could buy these companies at some stretch valuations. And if you hold them long enough, you'll probably do fine. It's not the end of the world to pay a little bit too much, but I really want to get them at very attractive valuations. So my, my concern about buying some of these companies is I don't want to wind up in a situation like, for instance, Coca-Cola in 1998. So Coca-Cola in 98 reached about 40 times earnings. Um, the, the company performed exceptionally well over the following 10 years, but investors pretty much lost money and were flat because the stock was too expensive. Um, and there's lots of examples of that. You could look at Microsoft. Microsoft from 2000 to 2010, I think they tripled their revenues, um, but the stock was too expensive. So it didn't really move, move the needle. So I'm trying to avoid those traps and at the same time, um, acquire these companies at an attractive valuation. Now, on the flip side of that, if you own Coke for 20 years or you own Microsoft for 20 years, you got a fine result. But I would like to have a good result within five to 10 years. Sure, sure. And now what about when you own a company? So we, we talked about like PayPal and Taiwan Semi, but let's say like, um, what would make you sell one of these companies? Yeah, so I'd sell if the valuation reached an extreme. So I'm not going to sell if the company just became like fairly valued. Uh, but if the valuation really got off the charts crazy, I'll sell it. Um, the other reason would be that I was I realized I was wrong about the business and the, and the moat has deteriorated and it fell apart. Um, so that would be another key reason. And uh, the other reason would be if there was just better opportunities around. So if we ever run into a situation like late 2008, 2009, I would probably have a lot of turnover in my portfolio because there's every business in the world is on sale and you can probably pick up some truly wonderful things and I might sell some positions to take advantage of that. You, uh, you threw out Intel earlier um, about a company you recently sold what uh, what made you sell Intel? Yeah, so I bought Intel in um, January 2021. So I held it for about two years. And we're getting back into semis. And what I was looking at was a company that had a moat. It still has a moat. It has pretty deep relationships with all of the major PC manufacturers. Um, and they have that those nice contracts in place. But... Um, problem is they're being outpaced technologically by companies like TSM. 
So two years ago, I saw it fell to a nine times EBIT uh, enterprise multiple. And I figured, all right, this is probably a good time to pick up a pretty good company at a pretty attractive price. But it turns out the market was right. The market was anticipating that they were just going to continue to fall technologically behind the curve. I thought they might have an opportunity to flip that around because they were spending so much on R&D, but it's just not happening. And um, when I looked at Taiwan Semi more more recently and I saw what they were doing, and then at the same time, uh, Intel released a disastrous earnings report on uh, January 27th, which prompted me to um, think about the position and uh, I sold the other day. Um, I think at this point, uh, Intel could be good value. You could probably, if some good news comes along, it's, I think it trades around 1.5 times book value at this point. It could be a situation where there's some good news, maybe tensions rise with China, the stock pops along the way while you wait for it, you can collect a pretty nice dividend. So the stock might offer value, but in terms of, is it a wonderful business I want to hold for 10 years? I don't think it falls into that bucket anymore. So I got rid of it. Investing is hard, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, like uh, you know, there's like, you know, you, you, you can pay too much for a great company. Um, and then like, you know, when you think you have a good value on what used to be a great company, it turns out to be a value trap. You know, I've, I've fallen for that kind of setup many, many times. Uh, I, I remember like, uh, man, this goes back, but like Gilead Science, mm-hmm. like if you... Uh, uh, if you remember, they basically they basically cured like hepatitis, right? And yeah. uh, and uh, you know the stock just took off, but then it like it, it started coming down. And I was looking, I'm like, wow, this trade that, and I forget, but it was like you know a PE ratio of like eight or nine, and it was you know if you looked at the trailing earnings growth, it, it looked great. You know, it was still growing like 20, 20 30 percent. I thought this is crazy, you know, like, but um, but what I was missing was that like you know generics were coming on uh online like and they were like carrying a disease that meant like well less people had it um so that their uh the demand for their product was was you know slowly going away um they almost like solved the problem too well and uh and and long story short i mean i I sold it years ago and i think it's still basically at the price i sold it five or six years ago after taking a 30 40 percent loss on it I um I did the exact same thing. Yeah. <laughs> I owned it. <laughs> there you go. There you um, go. It came yeah. up in uh, Joel Greenblatt's uh, Magic Formula screen uh, back when I was more into like quantitative investing, and I saw it in there, and I said, "Oh, high ROIC, low enterprise multiple. Let's do it." And it right. worked out well. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, t- it turned out like investing is you can never just really get it down to a simple formula um, that's foolproof. Uh, one of the things, one of the companies we talked about last year w- when you came on was was Meta Platforms. Now, <laughs> it's had quite a year, but it, uh, you know, if 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 you're a shareholder, you at least had it, well, the last couple of months were good. Uh, do you still hold Meta Platforms, and what do you think of it now? Yeah, I'm I'm strapped in for the wild ride. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I still hold it. I think when you look at the core family of apps, they're all still doing well, still growing users at a pretty steady pace. Um, and you look at that core business, it's it's doing great. Um, there's a perception out there that people are flocking from Facebook, but I think they're still using it. I think it's kind of like going to McDonald's, like everybody does it, but no one admits to it. <laughs> so, um, I think people still have their Facebook accounts, still go on there and, and check out how things are going. They absolutely still use Instagram. Um, that's still a big thing. And they're growing internationally. So even though Facebook might have some negative connotations in the United States, internationally, it's still pretty popular. So that core business is doing great. There's not really any problems with it. Um, it's still a great advertising platform. If you talk to anyone who advertises on Facebook, it's one of the best advertising platforms known to man. Um, they have still collected a lot of data on people, even though um, they've recently faced some concerns with Apple, where Apple is blocking their ability to do that to the extent that they did in the past. They still have tons of data. They can still target ads very effectively, and that business is, is doing well. Um, the concern over the stock is more of the money that Zuckerberg is spending on the metaverse. Um, that's still a major concern. You're not really seeing it 
bear any fruit yet. Um, that's eating into their um, their expenses and cutting into their profits. Zuckerberg has a long-term vision for the metaverse. Um, I think it might work. Call me crazy. I think I think it could pay off in the long run, but um, that is that is yet to be seen. If it if it doesn't work, mm-hmm. what do you? So let's say like, and when I say, I guess we should probably define work, but like uh, you know. I feel like the metaverse can be a thing. I feel like the Oculus and the, or you know the Quest and, and and their 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 glass devices, their AR and VR glass devices can can be a real platform. I wonder if it can ever pay off like for how much money they're spending on it. Mm-hmm. Um like uh if it doesn't work, if it doesn't justify the amount of money they're putting on it, what do you think happens to the the stock long-term? Um, so there's probably a few scenarios with the metaverse. So, and the question is where we are towards the evolution towards this metaverse. So let's talk about like the internet, um, the internet itself. So if you read like cyberpunk novels in the 1980s, it was clear that the internet was eventually going to be a thing. Um, people were talking already talking about networking computers and what would happen. The question was like, how fast was that going to happen? And if you made a big bet on the internet in 1985, you would have struggled for a while. That might be where we're at with the metaverse today. Alternatively, it could be like it's 1994 and um, it's really about to take off in a huge way. And Zuckerberg will basically own the next iteration of the internet where a bulk of activity on the internet is going to be these virtual reality um, segments. With that said, it doesn't look like the technology is really there yet. Like I think for that to work, you need it to be glasses that you could just pop on. Pop on. It can't be a huge headset. I think, um, and that's probably what will happen eventually. You need the graphics to be better. It can't just be cartoony images. You need to feel like I'm actually in a real location when you put on the virtual reality goggles. So where are we in that cycle? I'm not sure. Zuckerberg seems to think it's 1994. It could be 1985. <laughs> we we shall see. Um, but I, I think eventually virtual reality will be a big thing. Um, the question is when it's going to happen. Um, now for the stock. So um, what I think Zuckerberg should do is focus more on gaming. Um, focus more on creating like um, those massive multiplayer online role-playing games that they have out there. I think virtual reality is a perfect platform for that, where you can go onto a video game with your friends and you can go out there and actually feel like you're in the field, you know, shooting things or you're slaying a dragon or something like that, like create some really cool games. And that would kind of be the gateway drug to the metaverse, which longer term could be this much bigger thing. But I think they need to focus more on that. Instead, they seem to be focusing more on like conferences and hanging out with your friends and talking to them like well i'd like to do that in real life i wouldn't necessarily but if you have a really cool game i think that could sell some headsets um and if it is a complete dud if it doesn't work well you still have this excellent family of apps business that's doing super well and presumably they could turn off the spending they could admit defeat and move on and uh capture all the all the money from from this family of apps business and even with the money that they're spending on the metaverse um it's still a fantastic business even though even if, it, if even if all of that money is just going up in smoke um it's still a pretty good business even with that going on yeah no i i, I mean obviously i agree this is another stock i've been in for for a very very long time and uh uh, unfortunately, I have dollar cost average into it enough where I'm a little down on my p- overall position now. But um, I do agree. Like, uh, uh, you know, I, I just feel like if, if this this turned out to be a bad investment and, and uh, it doesn't ever like justify the expenses and research that Meta's poured into it, uh, like my line has always been like if the if the family of apps stays strong in that moat is able to withstand uh you know all the competitive threats uh like i think eventually like meta meta will be fine like that's a high margin business with um like a great advertising platform uh as you mentioned and like uh 
And so far, like, you know, you can talk about like Snapchat a few years ago with stories or TikTok. Um, you know, I think it's incredibly bullish, like how the family of apps have stood up to any kind of competition and withstood it and been able to at least, uh, at the very least, copy a, a feature or medium such as stories or such as, uh, you know, with Instagram reels, like copying like the vertical short form videos uh, and like uh, and, and incorporate that into their own platforms. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, it's amazing how they're able to hold up against competition. And like high level, think about how hard it would be to duplicate Facebook now. And it you could create a better Facebook, say some software engineer created a better Facebook. Well, your family's not on it. Um, you know, people you know aren't on it. You're on Facebook because other people are on Facebook. And unless you see a massive exodus from Facebook and Instagram, uh, I don't think that you're going to really see the motor road. And I think that's the ultimate test for remote. How hard would it be for a competitor to come in and make an alternative to this? And at this point, I think the moat is so entrenched that it's nearly impossible for someone to come along and do that. And as long as that's the case, I will continue to hold it. Well, look, I know you have to run, but for people who are interested in following you and want to find out more about your style of investing and look at your some of your write-ups that you do on companies that you're looking at, where, where can they find you? Uh, so the best place is on my Substack. So that's valuestockgeek.substack.com. Um, and then um, another great spot would be Twitter, uh, where my handle is at valuestockgeek. And like I said before, I subscribe to your Substack. I enjoy it. And I definitely follow you on Twitter. You're always putting out a good, good content. Uh, so you should definitely, we'll, we'll have that in the, the podcast notes for those who are interested, but definitely check out Value Stock Geek. Well, thanks for coming on today. Uh, listeners, thank you for listening. Again, I'm Matthew Cochran, a lead advisor at Seven Investing, where it is our mission to empower you to invest in your future. Have a great day, everyone. Thanks for having me.